Good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. I want to thank Dr. Cook and the church staff for letting me open God's Word with you tonight. And we're going to be continuing in the series, uh, I Give You My Word, God's Promises Fulfilled. And tonight, uh, the title is going to be Welcoming the King with Eyes of Faith. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you would like to turn there, I want to jump right in by reading, and then we've got five points, a poem, a sermon, and I might dance or something, who knows. (laughs) Um, Let's read together in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose... And have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. As we begin this evening, I want you to see that Matthew is not pulling any punches here. The first point that I want to give to you is in verses 1 and 2, and it's this, the Gentiles search for their king. Now, keep that in mind here, the Gentiles search for their king. Matthew sets the stage here in verse 1 very clearly as to where he's headed. We have here Jesus, after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea, there's the place in the days of Herod the king. So what you see here very quickly is Jesus the king that Matthew has already set up as the king being born in Bethlehem proving he is the king and he's placed and pitted against Herod the king. Matthew's not wasting any time here uh, with where he's going and it's quite uh, interesting to see the fight that's about to happen, maybe. So far in Matthew's narrative we've gotten the title king Uh, We haven't yet gotten the title king given to Jesus, but we have all the precursors to his divine royalty. Now we have the title king, but it's first given in Matthew's narrative to the earthly king, Herod the Great at this time. What Matthew is setting up for us, again, is this contrast between Herod the king and Jesus the king of the Jews. 
If you've been with us for the last few weeks in this series, what we've seen from Matthew is that Jesus is the king in the lineage of David, according to the Abrahamic promises. He is the king who is a sign to God's people that through a virgin conception, God himself is with his people. He's not the king like Ahaz in Isaiah 7, but rather he is the quintessential king, the one that Israel has been waiting for. And now Matthew pulls from this royal imagery of Jesus that he's painted so far, and he adds to it this truth, this fulfillment that Jesus is the one from Bethlehem, which should trigger in our ears the Old Testament if we're familiar, and even foreigners, that's what I want you to see here, even foreigners are asking the earthly king, where is the real king? The Gentiles are searching for their king. Notice the wise men's question. Where uh, has been born the king of the Jews is what they say. Matthew doesn't give us a lot of details here, but we have to assume, I think, that the Magi knew something of the significance of the role of a king in Israel, a king of the Jews. There's something special about that king This is the king that they are coming to worship and want to find, not Herod, which is also fun in the story. They ask him, where's the real king? These guys didn't just buy a group on vacation to Jerusalem and found out some like fun news when they got there that a king had been born. These are Gentiles, magi from the east, who are intentionally seeking out a king of great import, one whom they know is the king of the universe. And they want to find him. The significance of these first two verses then is that the Gentiles, who have been expecting the king of the Jews, and having seen his star rise, they desire to come and worship him. Now throughout the Old Testament, we have this picture of a royal figure or a king leading Israel. He's supposed to be the shepherd for Israel. However, there are also passages in the Old Testament that indicate that the king of Israel would rule all the nations. If we go back just one book in our Bibles to Malachi 1.14, the scripture says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So God has always intended to be king of the nations. And here in Matthew's gospel, a gospel with significant emphasis on the kingdom of heaven, we have immediately the Gentiles seeking their king. Some people debate whether these magi were in fact kings themselves potentially and that this scene may be reminiscent of something like the queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. And we have the song, We Three Kings. Well, we're not confident that they're kings. There's no mention here of a group of kings paying homage to just some significant earthly ruler that they had heard about. Instead, what we have a picture of is foreigners seeking the one whom they believe will rule all the nations and indeed rules the entire cosmos. Don't miss here that these magi, the wise men, came to worship Jesus. That was their intent. That was their goal. That was their purpose. Their intent was to find the king of the Jews and to worship him. They didn't come to gain his favor favor with bribery or gifts. They didn't come to seek his help in future wars that they may have, all the other things that you might come to, to, to welcome a king. They came to worship him. Matthew clearly demonstrates in his narrative thus far that Jesus is this king, but he's not only the king of the Jews, he's also the king of the nations. Now, 
As we contemplate this point during this Advent season, it may seem trite, but we should actually think ahead to Paul's epistles that make such a big deal of this uniting of the Gentiles into the covenant promises of God. And the reason we should look ahead is because we are those Gentiles largely. In this story, we would be these wise men. We would be these foreigners who stand outside of Israel and we either see Jesus for who he is or we don't. We either recognize his royalty and we seek to worship him as king of the cosmos or we don't. Those are the two options. As the Christmas season gets busier and busier and more commercialized, we run the risk of being just plain old Gentiles. In my classes, I would say uncircumcised Philistines. (laughs) We run the risk of being so busy and so enamored with our trinkets and cookies that we forget a king has been born. So let us be reminded this season that Jesus is the king of the Jews who came as God in the flesh to rule and to reign over the entire universe and let us worship him as the sovereign king that he is. That's point number one. Number two, a threat to earthly kingdoms, precursors to the cross. This is in verses three and four. Notice here that Matthew once again refers to Herod as the king. Matthew seems to be going out of his way here to pit Herod the king against Jesus the king, the one that he's already spent so much time presenting as king in the line of David, the one who is of the virgin conception, this one that is king, he puts Herod against him. And notice that Herod is troubled. The idea here is that he was shaken or rattled in his core. I don't know if you've ever been startled to the point of like, you feel like heart flutters. It's that kind of, whoo, it just got his attention. He's rattled, he's shaken. This news of a different king wasn't just an inconvenience to Herod, it was a threat and it caused him to shudder. Not only that, but the text also tells us that all Jerusalem with him was rattled or alarmed in this same way. Now this is important to see because it may be a simple point, but it is one worth remembering during the Advent season and it's one that Matthew puts before us here. Think forward with me in the gospel stories and in Jesus' life. And you'll remember or you know that the Jews, uh, in this case Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel that are troubled here with Herod, these are the very ones who brought Jesus to trial for claiming to be the Messiah, for claiming to be this king. These are the ones who brought him to trial. In fact, the only other places in the gospels where you have the title king of the Jews is when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews during his trial? And on the placard over the cross that says king of the Jews in multiple languages. So all of this Uh, threat to the king, this language of king of the Jews is Matthew's pointing us forward to the cross. Also notice here that Herod gathered the chief priests and the scribes, the very people who accused Jesus before Pilate. The point I think that Matthew is making is that you can't separate the incarnation from the passion of Jesus. His trial, his death, burial, and resurrection, all of those things to accomplish God's atoning purposes for the world and to demonstrate Christ's royal sovereignty even over death. Matthew points, although in a shadowy way here, he points to Jesus as the king who will serve his flock by dying in their place. The trouble stirred here by the news of a king of the Jews will culminate at the cross. 
And we can't separate those two during the Advent season. We can't separate the Advent from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus became flesh and offered his life as the payment for sin so that we might live in a right relationship with God the Father. And again, this is a simple point, and it's one that we've heard here at 9th and O several times, but it's, it's certainly worth remembering. It's worthwhile for us to, to ruminate, to, to meditate, to, to mold it around in our minds this time of year that Jesus came to earth as a king of the universe and willingly gave himself over to death so that we could have life. And as we ponder those thoughts this Advent season, I pray that our hearts would soar in thankfulness to God. One other note to make here, and notice how Matthew presents Jesus. He says, he, Herod, speaking of Herod, he inquired of them where, listen to this, where the Christ was to be born. Now, Christ is simply a, uh, the Greek translation of the Jewish word Messiah. And I think that Matthew is legitimately expressing here what Herod was asking. He's not just putting the word Messiah or Christ in the mouth of Herod in order to make a theological point, but he also doesn't shy away from the theological point. Herod, the king, legitimately asks the Jewish leaders where the Messiah is to be born. And as Matthew relays this story, he now has made it clear that this king of the Jews is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited anointed one, who not only will rule as king over his people, but indeed is the sovereign king of creation. It's no wonder that Herod was shuddering at the news of this king that had been born. It's no wonder that he wants to find out where he is. It's no wonder that he wants to seek to put him to death, as we will see in a moment. Jesus' arrival was an affront to all earthly kingdoms, and it would eventually cost him his life at the cross where he would win. We can't separate these two events in Jesus' life. Through his death, he triumphed over all sin and evil so that you and I could have life and joy and peace. He is our Messiah. Our anointed king who rules and reigns. He's our anointed priest who has entered into the holy place once and for all so that we can approach God the Father with joy and confidence. That's worth remembering this Advent season, I think. As we continue in the story, we get to point number three, prophetic fulfillment and a corporate indictment in verses five and six. Prophetic fulfillment and a corporate indictment. Now, this is the place where the Old Testament comes into play, so we're going to camp out here for a moment. <laughs> You're welcome. We get the answer here from the religious leaders to Herod's question, and it doesn't seem that they took very long to give him the answer of where the Messiah would be born. As Matthew relays this story, it seems that they come back with an answer pretty quickly. Notice the answer is, uh, in short form, in Bethlehem of Judea. Where is this king to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea. This recalls how Matthew introduced the story back in verse 1, if you remember that. And for the most part, we should read this story and probably say something like this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and we all go, yeah, yeah, I know, I've, I've read this story before, I know this. Um, I've been reading the Bible for quite some time. Read, read, read. The chief priests answer, in Bethlehem of Judea. Oh, that's how it's supposed to happen. That's kind of how we should approach, that's how it should affect us. We're like, in Bethlehem, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, yep, I got that. Get, um, and then the, the leaders come back and say, he is, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And we go, oh, that's what, that's what this is about. This was expected 
This is what the Jewish people were looking for, and they knew it and could bring an answer back quickly. Now, I don't think Herod or the religious leaders have put all this together yet. We kind of get the all hoity-toity with our theological outlook. Well, of course Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. We know that. It's, it's been in our liturgy for decades, centuries, hours. Well, mine's decades, three, thirty, three. Yeah, there you go. But Matthew presents this information from the lips of the religious leaders who knew the place from where the Messiah would come. Now, as we read through this narrative, we should arrive at verse 5 and potentially have a big gasp of air, knowing that a few verses before is where we were told that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We don't have to wait any longer. This nonchalant answer from the religious leaders should cause us to put some pieces together and to rejoice in the knowledge that this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem is indeed the one who fulfilled Micah 5.2. Matthew isn't being sneaky here, and we often overlook this obvious point that he's making. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem fulfilled the Old Testament expectation of that Messiah. Now, to make the point even more clear, the religious leaders point to Micah 5.2, and this is the Old Testament citation. If you're familiar with Micah 5.2, you'll recognize pretty quickly that Matthew has actually pulled from a couple of places in Micah 5 in order to make his point. And this isn't an exact quote of Micah 5.2, but as Dr. Wellam explained to us last week, very often these New Testament quotations of the Old Testament will actually expect you and I to know something of the context and to be able to put it together and sort it all out. It would be like us saying something like, uh, Deuteronomy says, love the Lord your God. Well, that's true. But it's nowhere near everything that Deuteronomy says, nor is it really the full context of Deuteronomy 6.5. It's a summary, and we've thrown that out there. That's something like what Matthew is doing here. I don't have time to get into all of the challenges of this quote tonight, but I do want to highlight a couple of things for you as we examine the point that Matthew is trying to make here. Notice that Bethlehem is in Judea in verse 1 and in verse 5. And then in the quotation, Bethlehem is in Judah. Now those are clearly the same thing, but if you think back to Micah 5.2, or if you've already flipped back in your Bibles to look at that, it says Bethlehem Ephrathah. And Craig read that this morning for us. This shouldn't alarm us, though, because these also are the same thing. If you remember in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 2 in the book of Ruth, when all of the characters are being introduced, you've got Naomi and Elimelech and Machlon and Kilion, all these guys are being introduced. It says they are Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So it's all the same place here is what we're doing. And Matthew is just trying to clarify that the Bethlehem Ephrathah of, Math, Math, of Micah 5 and the Bethlehem that we're expecting the Messiah to come from is, in fact, this Bethlehem in Judea from where the Messiah has been born. And he's also trying to separate it out for you here. There were two Bethlehems in Israel. There was a Bethlehem in Judea and a Bethlehem in the territory of Zebulun. So he's making it clear this is the one. This is the place. The second thing Matthew does with this quote is he changes the second line from you are too little to be among the clans of Judah in Micah 5. You are too little to be among the clans of Judah. He changes it to you are by no means least among the clans of Judah. Now, that one may initially bother us a little bit because those two things seem to be contradictory. Micah says Bethlehem was too small to be counted among the tribes. But Matthew's quote says, Bethlehem is by no means the least. Now, I think that uh, 
we can, we can iron this one out a little bit by looking at what is actually being communicated. In Micah, the statement that Bethlehem is too little communicates its relative insignificance, and that largely remained true even into the first century when Jesus was born there. However, in the greater context of Micah 5, we find that from this city will come the ruler who is to shepherd his people. So the relative insignificance of Bethlehem is contrasted with the massive significance that this is indeed the city that the shepherd king will come from. And Matthew makes this point clear in a very condensed way. He connects the dots for us in the quote by saying, you are by no means least among the clans because from you will come or has come this shepherd king. You're an insignificant city, but you are by no means the least because from you will come this king. So Matthew's not misquoting it. In the next line of Matthew's quote, we find that he has skipped some of the text and condensed it even more from Micah 5. From Bethlehem will come this ruler, this shepherd king, according to Micah. Micah says he will be a ruler in Israel, a ruler for God's people. And Matthew leaves that detail out, I think, because this is the visit of the Magi. Matthew highlights that Jesus is king of all the nations. So he changes it again for his context. Matthew then finishes his quote with this shepherd idea that comes from actually Micah 5 verses 4 and 5. You have to keep reading from Micah 2 to get the rest of this context. So Matthew jumps around a little bit in Micah in order to draw together the major themes that are necessary for his presentation here of Jesus. And just by way of summary, I'll give you those themes. One of them is Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah, not only for the Jews, but for the whole world. And we've covered that in plenty of ways already tonight. Number two, Jesus is this ruler whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. This fills in some of the context from Micah 5. Maybe you've heard that before, that a ruler will come forth whose coming forth is from from of old, from ancient of days. Matthew's putting this together so that the context you have and I have is that this is not an audible on God's part. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem to be the king of the nations is God's plan from eternity past. This is working out exactly the way God the Father intended it because this guy's coming forth, this Messiah's coming forth, this king's coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Thirdly, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah king as the long-awaited Messiah king will be a shepherd king. We don't have time to trace this all the way out, but... Um, oh man, I would encourage you to go tonight or sometime this week and read Ezekiel 34 with this shepherd idea. And what you're going to find is that all of the evil shepherds in Israel, all of the leaders of Israel were evil in God's history, in, in Israel's history. And what God says in that passage is that he himself will search for his people, will find them, and will shepherd them. God will shepherd his people. And so now Matthew is saying something to the effect of God is with us. (laughs) Oh, you should go read Ezekiel 34. It's so encouraging. It's not even the New Testament. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. A lot more could be said here, uh, but we, we need to move on. This, the point here that we have before us is a prophetic fulfillment. We've seen that. But we also have a corporate indictment. If you remember a moment ago, I mentioned that the religious leaders didn't wait long before they answered Herod. 
about where the king was to be born. They knew. They knew where the king was to be born. They knew the exact answer, and they knew it quickly. And yet, and yet, these are the very people who crucified Jesus. I think to some degree, Matthew is showing us here that the very people who should know the weight and the gravity of Jesus' birth very often are the first to forget or overlook. Maybe it's familiarity, maybe it's distraction, but very often those who should know the weight and gravity of our king being born, we are the ones who forget. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road for us during this Advent season as we remember the birth of our Savior. It's easy for us to sit around and to get entrenched into the busyness of the season, the shopping, the lattes, the parties, the traveling, all of that. It's easy for us to get bogged down in all of those things and forget that our King was born of a virgin in fulfillment of Scripture, was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Scripture, shepherded his flock perfectly in fulfillment of Scripture, died, was buried, and was raised on the third day all according to the Scriptures that we know and love. Let us not be like these religious leaders who nonchalantly have all of the right answers and forget to to bask in the glory and the beauty of what Christ accomplished by becoming a man. Let us not skip the affection of this season with just trite facts about Jesus. Let's enjoy the Christ, enjoy our Savior Revel in his royalty. Fourthly, tonight we have the reaction of a threatened king. False piety and an intent to kill in verses 7 and 8. The reaction of a threatened king, false piety and an intent to kill. As the story continues here, we see Herod begins to plot To kill Jesus. Now, this is not the plot that's going to continue on into the passion narratives, but it is indeed a plot to kill Jesus. In order for Herod to know how to manipulate this situation for his advantage, uh, he had to get more information from the Magi. And he gathers them now and he asks them when the star had appeared so that he would know when this king had been born. He previously asked where, and now he asks when. We find that this information becomes helpful to Herod in verse 16, which is outside of our passage but still related. Apparently the star appeared about two years uh, before this episode because Herod sought to kill all of the Jewish male boys who were two or younger. In verse 16 it says, according to the time that he, Herod, had ascertained from the wise men. So the information that Herod received he would use later to attempt to kill Jesus. Again, Matthew points to the clear opposition here that Jesus would receive from those kingdoms that are threatened by his rule. We see Herod's intent to kill blatantly in verse 16, but even here in our passage we see his intent to kill that's covered up by a false piety and false religiosity. He tells the wise men to bring word about the child so that he also could worship the child. Now that's the biggest bunch of hogwash I've heard in a while. Herod's kingdom is threatened, and he has no plan whatsoever to pay homage or to submit to the rule of King Jesus. His intent is to kill, and that's the true condition of his heart, and he covered it up with false piety. Now, it's easy for us to look at Herod and to condemn him, and and I think rightly so. However, before we get too far down that road, I want us to think about how our kingdoms are threatened by Jesus' reign. 
We have this notion at our house of uh, building God's kingdom versus building our own kingdom. And when the wheels start to come off uh, in our better moments, we can actually ask ourselves and ask one another the question, are you building your kingdom or are you building Christ's kingdom? It's a great question to ask. And I don't want to stand here tonight and, and pretend to know your kingdoms, the things that you struggle with or the things that draw you away from Jesus' loving sovereignty. But I do know that very often the distinguishing mark of building our own kingdoms is the focus on me. It's the focus on ourselves that very often is the distinguishing mark of building my own kingdom. And so I want us to at least ponder tonight. I want you to ask yourself this week during this season how it is that Jesus is breaking into your kingdom and disrupting what we think we deserve and what we think the way things should run. How is it that Jesus breaks into your kingdom and draws you out of your kingdom and turns your heart to a kingdom that will never end and a long-awaited king whose rule is forever and ever? It's worthwhile for us to consider that this season. Lastly here, number five, we have another prophetic fulfillment. Another prophetic fulfillment. The nations bring treasures into God's kingdom with great joy. In this last section of the passage here, Matthew recalls and he highlights the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. We've seen a virgin conception, quite miraculous, I think we can agree. And here you get another highlight of this miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. It's hard for us to know the details of this star that appeared uh, when Jesus was born and then seems to have led them Uh, the wise men, to the place where Jesus was. There's a lot of debate about what this was and how it happened, and it's just hard for us to know. And while the astronomical details may be outside of our reach, what Matthew presents is a miraculous event that led the wise men to their king. Notice the reaction of the Magi to this star. This This is fantastic. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Leon Morris, a commentator, proposes a paraphrase of this verse as deliriously happy. Deliriously happy. That makes me happy just thinking about that. I want to throw this in for you tonight. This is free of charge. I'm not gonna, I'll leave a tip jar at the door if you want to throw something in there, but this is free. The antidote to building our own kingdoms is to find exuberant joy in King Jesus. The Magi rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's a king coming in who is toppling their kingdoms just like he's toppling Herod's, and they love it. The antidote to building our own kingdoms is to fix our gaze on the beauty and the majesty and the grandeur of King Jesus And when that happens, the things that this earth offers us pale in comparison. In verse 11, Matthew puts one final hurrah on this arrival of the king. The wise men find Jesus. They bow down and they worship him. Particularly, they worship him by bringing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. What we see here is a clear fulfillment of Psalm 72 and Isaiah 60. Again, I don't have time to go read those, so I would encourage you to do that. Psalm 72 and Isaiah 60, jot those down. Both of these passages say that foreign dignitaries would bring gifts 
to the Lord when his glory arises and when his light shines among his people. When those things happen, these passages say that foreign people will bring presents, gifts to the Lord. In fact, a couple of the gifts that it says they will bring are gold and frankincense. So how about that? And indeed, in the birth of Christ, the light shone into the darkness. The glory of God in the face of Christ was displayed for all the world to see. And these magi, these wise men, saw Jesus for who he was, and they worshipped him with great joy. Matthew's not hiding the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of centuries of expectation. In fact, millennia of expectation. God's people had been waiting on their king to come. Indeed, even the nations had been waiting on their king to come, and he is now here. He's no ordinary man. He's no typical child. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is God incarnate, according to Matthew, and that matters to how we celebrate this season. Let's remember this season that Jesus is the long-awaited king who I think brings a massive sigh of relief for those who have eyes of faith to see him as God's Messiah. As I think about these notions of joy and exuberance, um, I, my, I thought about the song, O Holy Night. Now, I don't know if you've really pinned joy and exuberance on that song, but let me read this to you. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. That's pleasant. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. It's not just the night of our Savior's birth. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth. This one we love, this one we cling to, this anchor to whom we hold. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, just begging, longing. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. There's feeling, there's affection, there's spirit movement in our souls that this king has been born. Listen to this, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Through centuries of waiting and centuries of suffering, the world waited for this expected king to come. And when he arrived, you have Gentiles here worshiping. You have Joseph and Mary trusting the angel that their child is indeed the king of kings. You have Simeon and Anna still waiting for God's Messiah and welcoming him joyously. You have those people with eyes of faith welcoming their king. And in these stories, we see God's people waiting faithfully for the arrival of Jesus. And I would say to us tonight, let us join in this long line of God's faithful people who know that our king has come, but also that one day our king is coming again. Let us, with eyes of faith, long for the day that he will return and make all things new. If I may have a couple of minutes here, I want to read to you and close out with one final hymn. Uh, I told you there was a hymn. I won't dance to this one, but um, this is O Come, Emmanuel. And when I'm thinking about this song, it's, it's Emmanuel, which means God with us. But the, the, the question is to come. The, the exhortation is to come, Emmanuel. 
And while in this song, I think the, the picture is, oh, come, Emmanuel, and they're using Emmanuel as the title from Isaiah 7 of come, this one who is to be the king of Israel, I think for us, it can very much still be God is with us. We know God is with us. We know that Emmanuel has come, God is with us, and we still long for the day when he comes again. So that we, with eyes of faith, find ourselves exactly in the place of the Magi in Matthew 2, and we say, come, Emmanuel. God, you are with us, but would you come? And we, with eyes of faith, can welcome the day that our Savior returns. I want to read this for us tonight, and then... I'll say amen and we'll be dismissed. This will be the last piece, but I want you to, to hear this. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Hear those salvation words. You can't separate the cross from the incarnation. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, thou rod of Jesse, Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. I think many of us could, those words resonate with us. Give us victory. Come thou day spring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. O come, thou King, thou Key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Listen to this. O come, desire of nations. Bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. My prayer for you this holiday season, this Christmas season, this Advent season, and my prayer for our family is that we would rejoice in the coming of our King, the long-awaited Messiah, but that we would also look to the day when he would return. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word and the truth that it presents to us. We're grateful that you have given us the affection to love our Savior well. Father, I pray that you, through your Spirit, would stir our affections even more and that we wouldn't just meander through this Christmas season with a bunch of facts in our minds about the Messiah and and indeed truths. But Father, I pray we would be moved by those. I pray that you would affect our hearts, that we would be changed, that we would be motivated to holiness, that we would love Jesus more, and because of that, we would love people more. So, Father, we pray that you would do a work in us that we can't do and that you would change our motives, change our hearts, change our affections. Father, give us eyes to see the beauty and glory and grandeur of our King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.